Welcome to Southern Steep, the public health and social justice podcast brought to you by NASDAQ, a nonprofit, nonpartisan association mission to end the intersecting epidemics of HIV, viral hepatitis, and related conditions. Much like brewing stronger tea, this platform aims to brew a stronger community by centering community leaders' voices and their innovative work in the Southern United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Southern Steep. I am Bianca Ward, um, joined by the amazing, spectacular, red-lipped Nicole Elinoff today as my amazing co-host. Hey, Nicole. Hey, B. How you doing? You know what? I can't complain. I I can't. It's uh, it's a good day. I am feeling excited for our guest today because I just one I I love hips. Like it's a it's an organization that I have been familiar with for a long time. So I'm excited to get in that conversation. But before we do that, I just want to bring up the fact that I feel like you and I haven't recorded together in a while, and so it's wonderful to see you. It's so good to be in this space with you again. Um, you know, as Peaches and Herb say, reunited, and it feels so good. Um, and that's the type of mood we need all the time. Um, so really happy to be here and so excited to talk about HIPS. What a great organization. I love that you just referenced Peaches and Herb. That makes me feel so, literally feel so good. Feel so good. <laughs> Let's uh, let's get into it. Um, first, I'm going to read the amazing bio of our guest today. I know, I know. So before we even start, I love reading bios. It is like my thing, my jam, because, and I love it when our listener or our guests get to hear their bios because it's just another way to remember how awesome we are. <laughs> so Alex, I'm going to remind you how awesome you are. So our guest today is Alex Bradley. Alex started at HIPS um, in 2015 as an overnight outreach volunteer and is now responsible for coordinating and managing all of HIPS mobile service programs, including sex worker mobile outreach, syringe exchange, 24-hour hotline, and overdose prevention services, as well as the staff, volunteers, and interns who work for them. Alex earned an MPH from, from the George Washington University and a BA in psychology and government from Cornell University. Come on, Cornell. Outside of HIPS, <laughs> Alex loves spending time with family, friends, and community, supporting and participating in local queer artistic events, running, and 80s music. Yes. Hey, Alex. Hi. It's good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so before we even get started, how does it feel to hear your bio? Is there anything that you would add? And what's your favorite 80s band? Oh, oh, actually. Um, okay. <laughs> the last. I'll, I'll, I'll work in order. Um, is there anything I would like to add? You know, it's funny. I was just um, just asked. We were writing a big grant for the SAMHSA, um, grant proposal for SAMHSA that came out recently. And we were asked to do biographical sketches. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so overwhelming. Like, my history makes no sense. And I think it's why I only talk about the harm reduction portion in my bio because I come actually, I've done a lot of work in um, 
policy and like um, public benefits and things like that. Uh, and also then before that worked in uh, sexual assault and domestic violence related uh, services. And I was a direct service provider on uh, RAIN and some of the local DV. So my history is very weird and wonky and complicated, but um, I guess the unifying purpose or kind of goal or theme maybe um, is just trying to, I don't know, um, make things better for folks who've had it rough for a really long time um, and who I'm in community with um, and people who are just like uh, those of us who are regularly left behind in one way or another um, and looking for more solidarity in that regard. Um, and my favorite 80s band, it's funny that you mentioned this because as you let me into this meeting, um, somebody had tagged me in a post with my favorite 80s band, which is Depeche Mode. And uh, there was this kind of running joke, um, a couple, I don't know, you can edit this out if you want. Um, so I'll say that right now. Um, but uh, a couple years ago, Richard Spencer tried to claim that Depeche Mode was the music of the alt-right. Um, and they responded by calling him the C-word. So... <laughs> Uh, uh, that was thoroughly rejected and made me very happy. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't know They're where like, that came from. Considering uh, they have like songs about uh, how we should take all the money away from all the rich people and redistribute it to the mm. common good. So uh, don't know where he got that <laughs> memo from, but that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Were you about to say something? No, I, didn't know that. I just you know, I was just about to say that I haven't heard that name mentioned in a really long time, and how I'm just like really glad that we haven't heard that person. I agree. Name in a long time. I agree. It was so jarring to see that brought up again, <laughs> but then there was video of him getting punched, so that was fun. <laughs> so we um, we want to know more about you, uh, and and you kind of you know talked about this a little bit before when you were mentioning just your bio and your work but um yeah tell us how you tell us how you got into this work um tell us your why mm, yeah um it's it's interesting so i it's it's hard for me to track a lot of the journeys that my life has taken um but i i guess i would say my why for hip specifically um, my why for harm reduction has been so multifaceted. I think initially, um, when I was working in sexual assault related spaces, I noticed this uh, very clear and harmful divide that happened between um, people pushing and fighting against sex trafficking um, and people doing sex work advocacy. Um, and it felt very wrong, um, but it was hard. It, you know, no one had ever. I grew up in a very, um, like, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but I would say, like, a, I, I grew up in a very conservative, but not, I don't mean politically, I mean, like, conservative kind of socially household. I didn't get exposed to a lot of things. A lot was kept and sheltered from me, and I suffered a lot of consequences because of that um, and took about 10 years <laughs> to start to come into my own uh, identity after leaving. But seeing that felt unjust and wrong. Um, but I didn't really know how to channel that. So hips actually came in when I was 
getting trained at the DC Rape Crisis Center um, and did a training on kind of how to have conversations with sex workers because we had sex workers who called the hotline and, and a lot of times there's not a lot of resources for folks um, where they feel safe. Obviously law enforcement is off the table in like 95% of cases because people don't feel safe. Um, and so I put a kind of put that in the back of my brain and kept doing my work around sexual assault because, um, you know, I'm a survivor and, uh, that was where my energy was driven, but I never felt quite at home in those spaces. I felt like there was a lot of, um, and like, of course the nonprofit industrial complex touches everything. Right. But I felt like there was a lot of that energy around some of the work I was doing. And it was very steeped in like norms and, and, and structures that I didn't agree with and that I don't believe are actually fruitful for how we can best show up as people in the world. Um, and so like very, very long time later, many, many years doing very <laughs> formal work environment kind of situations. Um, I, I, I finally got through my master's program and I had time to reconnect with hips, um, and become a volunteer. And I went through the training. Um, I was finally butting into my queer and uh, non-binary identity for the first time I was starting to like seek out community um, and HIPS was a place that was safe and where many people that I knew and trusted and who were the most rad people I knew were um, so I was like if they're there I should go there so we kind of community wise like slowly almost every single one of us ended up at HIPS in some capacity or another whether as a volunteer or a staff member um, and I started out as a volunteer and I felt very, at first, very reluctant um, to even consider applying for a position at HIPS because I believe strongly in harm reduction being driven and led by the communities it serves. And in a lot of ways, I do not face the same oppressions that many of the folks that we serve face. I'm a white person um, and I have, I have college degrees. I have many things in my favor. Um, so it, it was, it, it took a very specific confluence of factors and the, the position that I'm in now, um, which is the, the outreach department has, was a, was a, a difficult department. Um, it, it faces a lot of challenges. It's deeply underfunded. Um, and the work is not valued very much. Um, it is given a lot of lip service, but it's not valued financially. It's not valued in terms of actually putting um, resources behind it. And we had to, I mean, to be, to be frank, we had had a hard time finding somebody for this position. There were four in four years, um, four people in this position in the course of four years. It's a hard job. You really don't get time like to turn off very easily because as you read in the bio, right, there's a lot of 24 seven, a lot of overnight shifts, weekend shifts, daytime shifts. We're going all the time. Um, oh gosh, I'm about to say something emotional. Sorry. Um, and so my, our daytime syringe service specialist, Maurice, Mo, um, Mo is an incredible person and probably my deepest inspiration and mentor. And when I applied for the job, I was, I was still uncertain even after I applied. Um, and I didn't want to take it without his blessing. Um, they were considering offering it to me, but wanted me to do an interview with him as well. And I said, absolutely. 
he was at the time the only other staff member on the outreach team, um, which is wild. Like we now have about seven people. Um, we grew a lot. Um, and that's thanks to the team, the team, that was all the team. That was all us just like putting pedal to the metal. Um, but he, as, as was, was Mo's way, he drove up to my house and picked me up in the van. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, that's where he did all his kind of thinking and, and, and processing with people. Um, and we like did my interview and I'm using a lot of air quotes for the word interview. We had our conversation in the van, which is where we both felt most at home. Um, and he told me a lot of things that meant a lot, mostly that he believed in me um, and trusted me to be in this space. And we lost him last year, um, which is why this is really hard right now, because he was the, the soul of the outreach department. And so I think all of us that are left behind have made it more our mission than ever to carry on his legacy. He believed in safe consumption spaces. He believed in decrim. He believed in community. He believed in fighting for the dignity and the humanity of everybody he saw. Um, and watching the way that each and every one of us, inc- like learning from and emanating from Mo and each other, like that is how we operate. That is our first priority is recognizing each other's humanity, approaching not just externally, but internally each other as complicated human beings with different needs um, and doing this work from a place of compassion and shared humanity. Um, I don't know if that ended up actually answering your question, but that's kind of how I came into this. No, that is, um, that is, is great and, and, and powerful and, and genuine. And sometimes, um, it's interesting to kind of, even when we ask that question or think about it, just to reflect on where we've been, how we've gotten, how we've gotten to the place that we're at, um, especially if it if it feels so different from where we thought we would be, right? Um, so even backing up a little bit, because I, I forgot to ask, I should have done it in the beginning. Um, tell us about hips. What the what. Yeah, tell us about hips. Yeah, I guess a lot of what I just said probably doesn't entirely make sense. So yeah, (laughs) I should explain that. Um, So hips is um, a harm reduction organization in DC. Um, We started out as primarily sex worker focused. Um, So our original mission was um, promoting like the health, safety and well-being of sex workers. Um, but there were a ton of intersecting and overlapping identities that come with that. Um, and you know, sex workers come in all all shapes and forms and sizes. Um, and that included, especially in the DC context, because of some of the politics here in DC, this is one of the most queer and trans cities in the country. Um, and so we had a kind of a very, 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 very large, um, group of folks who were trans, uh, trans women of color in the nineties, things were very, very different. We started out in the nineties. So, um, people didn't have like a lot of the things that they had today. So hips came around and also we were in the height. So for those who aren't familiar with the DC context, DC 
was um, DC's HIV epidemic was leaps and bounds above almost anywhere else in the country. It was one of the the highest hotspots for at the time. Um, we finally hit a point of like plateau at this point um, in 2022, but in the 90s, that was absolutely not the case. Um, so a convalescence of uh, kind of innovative thinkers and people caring about their community and funding from HIV related sources kind of got this like little scrappy organization off the ground. And we were really built up of a combination of like sex workers and trans women and people who cared about them. And it was just like making it work. (laughs) Um, We had like the van was our, the van and the hotline were our first services. And they're what I still work on to this day. Um, And they're still our most underfunded. Um, But um, you know, it's, it's how you reach the, it's how you reach people. Like if people are out there, you know, go to them, go to where people are, meet people where they are. Literally. That's like the motto of harm reduction. And we are literally doing that. So our van was like our original thing, but another one of the intersections right at the time was um, a lot of folks who are working, especially if you're doing street-based sex work, do a lot of things to survive. And some of those things included using drugs. Um, and mostly stimulant users, honestly, at the time, folks using things to keep them going, keep them up, keep them, you know, positive all night. Um, and there was another syringe service program operating at the time. We, the the history of syringe services in DC is its own story because it's not mine to tell because I was very young. Uh, but the, the long and short of it is that, uh, as many of you might know, DC doesn't have home rule um, because we're not a state. So Congress can intervene in anything that DC does legally. Um, And when we tried to pass syringe service programs in DC, Congress tried to back us. There was a big fight. We won. Um, But (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) uh, it was a lot. There was a syringe service provider. We were kind of operating parallel. We were not bothering them. We didn't do syringe services. We were mostly working with stimulant users and sex workers. They were working with people who used opioids. That was just kind of the the landscape. It was just our turf, not a negative turf war, just like it was how it was. Unfortunately, they went under. Um, and the health department was like, we'll do it. And we were like, how about not? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and like, that's, you know, I'm not saying that to be totally shady, but like, there is a reason why you draw from the community and not from people who are 20 layers removed from the community and have no context and no relationships with people on the ground. Like there just is a reason why harm reduction is designed that way. And so I don't mean that to throw shade at the health department. They're the people funding the program, but we convince them, Hey, this is going to go a lot better. If you trust people who are out there every day, who, who see, who know, who are the folks involved to do this program. And so in 2007, HIPS um, picked up HIPS. And there's also two other syringe service programs in the district. We are huge fans and friends of Family Medical. They're awesome. They're one of the other big ones. Um, Mark Robinson. We just we just operate in our own little bubbles and we have our own uh, like kind of just perspective and way of doing things. And we each kind of symbiotically exist in DC and it's great. Um, so since 2007, HIPS has had a certain service program. Our numbers of clients served, staff members, programs offered, things on 
ballooned, skyrocketed, exploded. We grew faster than we know what to do with. Um, and now as of today, um, the syringe service program, naloxone, so we got naloxone um, publicly accessible. We were part of that movement um, in the 2010s. So that successfully is available now. We do overdose prevention trainings. Um, heck yeah. Uh, we do uh, fentanyl test strip distribution. Um, we also have a clinic. So our clinic does things like HIV and hepatitis C care and testing. We have um, gender affirming care, um, which is a, a newer program that we've been so blessed to be able to have. Folks can come in, um, get you know, get access to hormone therapy, get get folks to help them navigate surgery. Um, I will be perfectly honest that I'm in that program. So uh, it's it's been amazing to be able to go to the people who know you and care about you to get those services. Um, and then we also have our drop-in center, which has been a struggle with the pandemic, but um, they still are doing what they do. They just do it outside now. So they have a table, hand out food, um, do there's peer support groups. There's uh, support groups with the uh, addiction, certified addiction counselor that we have um, the clothing closet. Um, we have uh, both trans and, and cis women's wellness programs um, and, and also services for folks experiencing housing insecurity and, and housing navigation. Ooh, that's a lot. So all that to say, hips blew up, <laughs> um, and now we have a ton going on. Um, and still, you know, still always, it's a, always still a struggle to keep funding. I don't understand how it's still so difficult to keep consistent funding for things like this that matter, but we figure out a way uh, and make it happen. And that's where we're at now. <laughs> Thank you so much for painting us such a rich picture of the services that you all offer, but also the feelings that people get when they are there for services. Um, and, you know, it's just a testament to see like how you all continue to grow and expand to meet the needs of community. Um, for an just one other thing, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, your conversation and your history that you had with Mo and just lifting him up in this conversation. Um, it's really special. And, um, you know, the the legacy in these movements can need to be continued to be need to continue to be discussed. Um, you know, they they really helped get us to where we are today. Um, you know, the our ancestors in this movement. Um, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times about the van. And, you know, for folks that might have never seen the van or have been inside the van, can you tell us a little bit about like what what's it like in the van? Um, paint us a picture of that. Oh my gosh, yes. Um Oh, the van. The van is like secretly the love of my life. Um, and it was also secretly the love of Mo's life, which I was one of the many things that bonded us. I think we both felt a deep connection to why it was so important and how it worked and how it ticked. Um, the van is literally a minivan. It's a mom van. Um, <laughs> like not even baby. <laughs> not even talking about something fancy here. Um, but it is got big giant pink letters on the side that say the hips logo um and our hotline number on the back in the back window um it is consistently a mess um <laughs> it is full of powdered hot chocolate and 
um, broken paper bags and pieces of boxes that have been torn open during shift. It's chaos. Um, the van is delightful chaos that is like a second home for many of us. Um, and each, the van is different depending on who's in it because it's made up of who's in the van. Like the van takes on the identity of the people inside it. When Mo is in the van, <laughs> you would have go-go music blasting, um, driving down, parked outside, um, trunk open, handing out, like leaning into the ba- back of the van, handing out bags of works. Um, I started out my, it was always the joke that like daytime was Mo and the vampire time was me. And that was our, our divide. I was the night shift. Um, our vans are full of, uh, uh, chaotic energy and, 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 uh, dan- queer dance music. <laughs> Maybe some 80s Love music it. for sure. <laughs> um, yes. but yeah, it's, it's where most of us, found our initial footing whether we were volunteers whether we came in as staff like almost everybody goes through the van at some point and it's just it's so important and so unpredictable and so chaotic like everything about a van shift you never know what's gonna happen you never know what's gonna happen you have a rough idea but you never know what's gonna happen um and that's the beauty of it and that's the point of it the point of it is to be out figuring out how to make things work for folks who need things to work for them and don't usually have people around to make things work for them. Um, you know, it's, and, and it's, it, it does make the job more challenging because it's not like, you know, you can be like, oh yeah. And the drop-in center has its own chaos too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, but it's just, it, it, it takes on a life of its own and it's very much made up of the people who are in it. Um, we've stock it full of, we, we've, we put down the back seats um, and we have the well, where the uh, the seat would be able to pull into. We put our sharps container in there in the back so it's as far away from everybody as possible. We have big husky bags full of needles and condoms <laughs> uh, and alcohol pads and water and 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 snacks and uh, right at now hand warmers and uh, blankets and anything we can pull together. Honestly, a lot of that comes out of the incredible generosity of our volunteers and our community who donate a lot of the food and, and other things that we can't use grant funding to buy. I can't tell you how many times our community has come through to just figure out ways to get the things that we need for people. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just a giant messy van full of Narcan and works. <laughs> and <content. laughs> That's the best type of mom van. It really is. <laughs> Yes. I, yeah, I'm the honorary dad of hips. Um, and so it it is funny to drive around a mom, man, but that's, that's, that's what it is. Love that. When I think of, when I think of how long I have been doing just HIV work in DC, a very long time, almost 20 years. Um, I think of a lot of organizations that had a van, (laughs) And the organization I used to work for, we also had a van with plenty of condoms in the back and a variety of other things. And so um, you're right. Like just when you were saying like it takes on the personality of the person um, driving it or the people that we're serving or 
Ooh, all the adventures. If those seats could talk, like there's just so, <laughs> there is so much. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but it was also, again, and I think about um, these organizations that that van is also kind of a, a symbol of like this, um, a life raft for some, a beacon of hope for some. Like literally, when you talk about hand warmers and and blankets, like seeing that van coming and those bright pink letters or just knowing or even knowing where it's going to be at any particular time in the city is is life-changing for a lot of folks so kudos to the van um just all the now i'm going down memory lane honey in my own mind of all of the van memories but we won't do that today um so you touched on this a few times um already but i want to uh do a deeper dive into volunteers like volunteers are are literally the the unsung heroes the people that make i think any any organization or any um yeah any organization in the community really run and work um tell us a little bit about how um how you started as as a volunteer and what that was like for you yeah um i was incredibly blessed um, to be to have come in at a time when uh, somebody I admire deeply um, have come to admire have come to uh, know better was in my in in this position that I'm in right now. So this this position because so many of the volunteers go into outreach related programs, it has always lived under the outreach bucket to train and recruit volunteers. Um, and uh, I had the very good fortune of being trained by a Sasanka who was in this position when I was um, in 2015 when I came in. Shout out to Sasanka. They yes. are incredible. Shout okay. out to them. Yes, I'm so glad you know them because they are amazing. And we're still in touch a lot. Um, and I've had many long conversations about hips and harm reduction and, and all that good stuff. But Sasanka trained me um, and I, that training was truly life altering for me. And I had been through four different like crisis work related trainings before of equal magnitude, like, and all of them were excellent, but the training that Sasanka led and developed was truly like comprehensive and 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 well done in a way that only like somebody like them can do um and we kind of kept that legacy and have adapted it since then a lot has changed since 2015 um we have to do some new things like we rekindled our stimulant user program so we have to go back into okay how do we like train people not just on opioids but also methamphetamine and cocaine and crack and all these other things um, but like the bones, the skeleton of everything is still very much what Sasanka spent a tremendous amount of time putting in place. Um, and so at this point, like, you know, the volunteers make a pretty substantial commitment and we try to be very, I'm honest with folks. I'm like, this is a 40 hour training minimum. Like there's going to be a hotline assessment at the end. And frankly, like we want you to assess why you are here um, because this is, it is, there is so much violence that happens to the community that we serve. 
in so many different ways, the communities that we serve in so many different ways um, from, you know, not being able to trust service providers in a lot of ways, having to hide, being literally chased down by law enforcement on a regular basis. Like there are so many reasons why we have to be a little tough. Um, but the folks who have stuck it out and to whom it really matters and who care deeply, we could not function without them. I mean, we operate six days a week, plus overnights, plus a 24 hour hotline. We couldn't do this without them. And it, it's a tough line to walk because you're asking folks who also often have numerous identities that correspond with the identities that are part of HIPS, right? We all, um, I would say all of us do, at least on the staff and amongst the peers. That's a lot of burden. It's hard to separate yourself from this work. So I would, the volunteers, I know so many people who have changed my life, who have been part of this community, who keep this ship running and us able to do things that other organizations can't necessarily do. I mean, our whole hotline is staffed by volunteers. The overnight outreach program completely like is other than my team, every other one is volunteer led. And the Saturday daytime shift, we have only one staff member on. The rest of that is, is served by volunteers and interns. They are an incredible, incredible support. And not to mention how much they show up to like outside of directly like staffing shifts, how much they show up to be present for the advocacy work that is needed mm-hmm. for talking to community members, for engaging other people, for promoting events, for getting people in the door, for explaining why overdose education is important. Like I can't minim I don't want to minimize all that because that sometimes that work is just as if not more important to actually do the like there's only you know seven of us on the outreach team, right? seven staff members and like five peers. So there's 12 of us. We've got a city of 700,000 people Mm. (laughs) and we've got to spread this message to 700,000 people. So we, they are essential to being like little dispersed mini hips across the entire (laughs) city, right? Like little, little representatives everywhere. And all of us, we, we divide and conquer that way. Like we're in the middle of a campaign right now about decrim mm-hmm. and how powerful is it to have members of the hips community in every single ward in every single ANC, probably if we really broke it down, like, mm-hmm. every, you know, that, that is going to be the difference between somebody taking us seriously. We are constituents everywhere. We are everywhere. <laughs> 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 and, and that's a good thing. That's, that's a beautiful thing because we can't, you know, we can't be, we, the 12 of us can't be everywhere at once, but the exactly. hips community can, can kind of get closer to being everywhere at once. Um, so I love that. <laughs> what do you think, um, what makes a great hips volunteer? Like, what are the qualities that, that you look for mm. um, when somebody comes in? Because like you said, like it's, it's a lot of work and, um, and a responsibility and holding space for folks. What do you, yeah. what do you look for? Yeah. I mean, I think at the core of it, folks who 
and this is going to sound cliche, but like an open heart and an open mind. And I mean that in like the truest sense of the word, because this is, I don't like to downplay how emotionally difficult this work is. And especially considering most people who come into this work have stake in it for one reason or another. I don't mean, I mean like emotional, personal, like lived experience stake in it. Um, we, I mean, certainly one of the things is that um, we, we want as, as much as possible for the folks providing services to be from community in some way, shape or form. <laughs> Very few people are going to hold every identity <laughs> that we, but some aspect of it, where, how are you bringing to the table? Um, and then either way, whether you are or not, are you able to approach this space with humility um, and compassion? Because there's a lot of things. I, I, I believe if, if, if you come in and, and we have humility and we can teach each other and we can have a conversation, we can learn from each other and we can be humble in ourselves, that I can work with that. I, yeah, you can come from wherever. But that's, if you come in with a, like an agenda or for this to be something for your resume, it's not going to be a good fit because it, it's, it can't be like that. It, it can't be. Because the people standing in front of you are human beings who have been let down so many times, so many times. And the people you're in community with are people who have been let down so many times and have had to, have had to push back against so many obstacles and so much stigma, like for no reason. So if you can come in with that, if you can come in with an open heart, with an open mind, with humility, and with an ability to just listen, truly listen to people and take what they're saying to heart and have a real conversation, I can go from there. We got, we can train you on the rest. I don't need you to know how a needle works. I don't need you to know how mess works. I don't need you to know anything else. I don't need you to know what herpes is. I just need you to have that. Everything else is teachable. That's what I need. That's what we need. That's what the community needs. I really appreciate that you all have set, take such a strong commitment and stand about who you let through the doors, whether they complete the training or not, um, because ultimately, you know, the volunteers are spreading the message of hips. And the last thing you want is folks that are not really embodying the message of hips out there spreading that message. Hundred percent, a hundred percent, and and I I struggle with this because there's a part of my brain that's like, well, it's worth teaching anybody who's willing to kind of listen to the message of harm reduction. But then the the line gets drawn with when you like when we are present. Like any social service provider is inherently holding power. That's just true. There is a power dynamic at play. I have things and. So if we're not committed collectively to doing everything in our power to reduce that power dynamic, we're doing it wrong. Um, and so that is part of how we kind of navigate having those conversations with people. And that is literally the first training is power and oppression um, and power and privilege in service. And there's nothing we can do to make that zero. It's never going to happen. But until we just deconstruct the entire like societal system, which that's going to take some time. Um, but until then we have to do everything we can to level the playing field. And so that's part of it for us. 
Thank you so much for, you know, telling us about like your experience as a volunteer and what you look for in volunteers and like the whole, you know, really the unsung heroes of this work. Um, I'm going to take us on another direction. And these are some questions that we um, ask all of our guests. Um, and so it's a two-parter. What do you love about the South? Um, because yes, DC is still in the South, y'all. What do you love about the South? And what do you want to see for the South? Mm, great question. Great question. Um, what do I love about the South? I love that... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, I actually grew up in the North, uh, so, uh, but I moved here basically the minute I had the chance, um, kind of had been here many times, felt at home here. And what I love about the South is real is, is there's just so much more like realness of identity. There's an identity. People like are proud to be from a place. People have connection to a place that they're from. And that's how I feel about DC. This, this is my home. I have me, this has been my home for over 10 years and I hope it stays my home until I'm in the ground. Um, and I think that's like, I love that energy. Everybody, you know, there's Maryland pride, there's Texas, pride. like there's so much, like so much identity associated with where you're from in the South. And in the North, we're like, we're from, like there's just not like that. <laughs> to the same degree um and so that that energy there's something so like I don't know it's it just cr creates a sense of community which is what like harm reduction is about right and it's something we can always go back to and be like this is our home like we it, it also is power right like it, in a way if we think about it that way like it's it's our home it's our place it's where we are um what I would love to see for the south um Huh. Uh, a lot of things. Uh, freedom from freedom from interventions of people with a lot of money and power um, that create circumstances where uh, undeserving reputations are granted. Uh, I think there's a ton of misconceptions about the South, a ton of misconceptions about who lives in the South, a ton of misconceptions. Like, for just to, if I could speak to my own experience, like. There is a you know so much misconception about queer people in the South, um, and like as if no one lives in the South or no one can possibly be safe. And there are tons of vibrant queer communities in the South, <laughs> like, and people don't know that because they have biased views of what the South is like. And I just I hope for a future where we can undo the workings of people with a lot of money and power so that people in those communities have more of a voice politically and more of a voice in terms of like real kind of political and advocacy power. Um, that's what I hope for the South. Come on. Yes. Um, that's my only, you know, you're just, I'm, I'm buying what you're selling. I absolutely yes. agree with everything that you just mentioned. Um, how can people get in touch with you and your programs? Oh, heck yeah. Um, so if you're a DC person and you want to actually access services from HIPS, um, I would say the easiest thing is to call our hotline, um, which is 1-800-676-HIPS, which is 4477. So 1-800-676-4477. Um, you can also reach out through our website, which is www.hips.org. 
Um, you can email me and my team at outreach at hips.org. Um, and we can get you connected if you need syringes, if you need um, connection to services, HIV testing, whatever, just reach out to us and we can get that to you. Um, if you just want to like talk or get to know more, um, I would say hit us up over email because the hotline is staffed, as I said, by volunteers. They're not going to like, they're there to do that crisis counseling. They're not there to like answer <laughs> like, you know, administrative questions about hips. So hit us up over email if that's what you're looking for, if you're not local. Um, but yeah, those are the best ways. You can also go over to drop-in center, 906 H street, Northeast, um, in DC. Or find the van. Just wave us down. Literally just yell hips and I will pull over. <laughs> it's I, the have van. Like a, I have like a famous ear for yelling hips. Like I can hear it like three blocks away. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I love it. Like I just envision like the equivalent of the bat signal, like going up in the sky and the hips van just pulling up. I love it with all of the things that people need to survive. Love it. <laughs> we try. We try. <sighs> that is so awesome. I just, um, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with Hi. us, for um, sharing so much insight and wisdom and experience. I know that I, I've learned a lot even in this, in the, even in this brief time. And like I said, like I've always, um, I've always known about hips and the amazing work um, that you all do. So but to hear your story and your perspective and just how it, it's just very clear how, how hips is also changing your life. So um. radically, radically, <laughs> I, I don't think you would recognize me five years ago. I, mm. I legitimately don't. Um, and I'm grateful. Like hips that is as a community, as an organization, hips is directly responsible for where I am in my life right now. And 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 I couldn't be more grateful. And I can say that's probably true for the vast majority of people I work with as well. Like it, ah, this team is amazing, and I love the Hips family. Like they're just, we're incredible. They're incredible. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it, we love it. I first learned about Hips from Sasanka, um, so it's just everything's coming full circle. Um, Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you for taking the time with me. I really appreciate this and, and, and all of your questions and energy and just sharing the space with you. Thank you so much. It's time for a segment we call Southern Charm. Here we highlight the work of someone or an organization that is charmingly impacting the South. For this episode's edition of Southern Charm, we highlight Genderbenders, located in Piedmont, South Carolina. Genderbenders provides a range of advocacy, education, and support services for transgender nonconforming individuals. At Genderbenders, they connect people to the resources they need to live full and healthy lives. They engage in advocacy and education work to propel their collective agenda to obtain to obtain gender justice in the South. And finally, they hold intentional space for trans and gender diverse folks to connect, including an annual multi-day retreat for the TGNC adults called Camp 
GB. In addition, they hold training and leadership development programs, HIV prevention, intervention programs, and supportive online spaces. To learn more about the great work happening at Genderbenders, visit www.genderbenders.org. I have so much I could say about that with the adult camp. Um, because I didn't get to go to summer camp as a kid, like the sleepaway kind. Nope, me either. And um, the sleepaway kind is a different experience than a day camp. It is. Not knocking day camp, but like, <laughs> you know, it's a whole, you got nighttime experiences at slumber party, slumber camp, sleepaway. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I love, um, and this kind of speaks to what Alex was mentioning earlier in terms of intentional community and building com- uh, queer community and spaces. And I think what Gender Benders is doing is, is literally that offering the support, but also offering this Camp GB experience. So cool. So cool. And, you know, it also just speaks to what their point was about you know, thriving queer spaces in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, South Carolina, name me a Southern state, you know, South Carolina (laughs) is one of them for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, So cool. Love it. Thank you again for Alex Bradley for joining us today and truly being incredible. Again, shout out to HIPS. For more Southern Steep, be sure to check us out at nasdaq.org or the CBO Hub. I am Bianca Ward. And I'm Nicole Elenoff. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.